HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Welcome to Heritage Radio Network I'm On Tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation. Today we're broadcasting live from Charleston Wine and Food. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible and to Charleston Wine and Food Festival for having HRN down here for the fifth year in a row. Our guest today is Ryan Zapaltis. Ryan is the winemaker and GM or... Winemaker and GM for Copain Winery um, in Sonoma in California. Welcome to the Grave Nation, Ryan. Sam, thanks for having me here. Um, is this your first festival? It is. I've been to Charleston many, many times, but never this Okay, festival. so we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, I think, as I tell a lot of my listeners about my guests... I think they probably know your wines more than they know you, but you're the guy that makes the wines. So give me a little background on your journey in life and wine that got you to where you are today, which is making the wines and pretty much running Copane. Yeah, so uh, I grew up in the state of Wisconsin. Where? Eau Claire, Wisconsin. Because I went to Madison. Okay. Where'd you go to college? Eau Claire. Okay. Sometimes. <laughs> All right. Um, a lot of beer. Yeah, a lot of trouble. Uh, so I grew up in the state of Wisconsin, had really no, wine was not really part of my life at all. Uh, as you mentioned, cheap beer. There's like seven bottles of wine in the whole state. Yeah, well, it's changed it's quite a better. bit. Okay. Yeah, Madison, Milwaukee. Don't, don't are let me keep interrupting, all right? Go ahead. That's okay. Uh, so yeah, I, I finished school in 98. Uh, I was looking kind of what to do next. And my cool aunt... Uh, that lived in California in the Russian River Valley. She was a sales rep for a small distributor. And she's just like, when you finish school, just come out to California and screw off for summer. You can stay with us, figure out your life. You know, I just finished school. And so just set something up in my mind. Is this your mom or your dad's sister? This is my dad's sister. It's a real blood yeah. aunt and all that. Yeah, she's a cool lady that moved from Wisconsin to California. And when she said that, were your parents supportive? Like, okay, give it a shot or... Yeah, yeah, they were. Okay. Yeah. I mean, she was like the crazy aunt, so they probably were a little like, not crazy, but like right. the wild aunt. I'll right. Say. And so maybe they were a not little the worried. typical Eau Claire aunt. Yeah, right. yeah. Okay. So, yeah, so I moved out there for a summer. I was really into skateboarding at the time. Like, I kind of had some stuff going in that world, and I wanted to be out in California, so that was my perfect place to go. You know, she had the couch to crash on. And, yes. 
what year and how old are we right now? Just to that get was ninety eight, right? Place. Right when I turned twenty three. So yeah. okay, yeah. All right, so you go out, and then what happens? So eventually, ran out of my life savings of four hundred dollars. <laughs> decided I wanted to stay in California, and I, uh, you know, I'd met this guy who ran a wine cellar. He uh, ran the the cellar at La Crema back in the day. And he's, I met him at a dinner party and he's like, come work harvest for me. You can, you know, you can, uh, make a lot of overtime cash and whatever. And I was just like, oh, that sounds cool. I'll be by some, be by the wine, you know, like just sounded cool. And so I did my first harvest in 98, just digging tanks, dragging hoses, all like the shit work. Really a cellar oh, rat. I didn't mean to cuss on your, on That's your show. A, no, don't worry about all right, that. All right. Um, cellar rat. Yeah. 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 So an Are intern. Are you loving it though? I was loving it. I uh, love the excitement of harvest. I love, you know, pushing pumps around, climbing tanks, doing all that stuff. I love the excitement. And so I kind of decided, like, yeah, I think I'll kind of try to stay here and see what happens. So, so that was a defining moment. Like, this is something I can and want to do. Yeah. At the time, I just thought it was a cool job. And then a <laughs> uh, couple of years doing that, I, uh, I got tipped tipped off that you could go work in other countries and do harvest there. And one of the winemakers at the time, he said, you should go to New Zealand and work. It's really fun. And you can meet some girls and travel and blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, okay, cool, whatever. And so when I went to New Zealand, I worked for Villa Maria. I worked for uh, Michelle Richardson. She's a legendary winemaker down there. And, uh, you know, she gave me a lot of responsibility. I think my resume made it seem like I like knew way more, more than you. Yeah, knew more than anyone knew. You should have gotten right. So she's like, "Oh, you made Pinot? Well, you're in charge of Pinot Chardonnay." <laughs> I'm like, "Okay, what do you mean by in charge?" So she gave me a lot of responsibility, and I had to do my own lab work, kind of in charge of the Did Pinot. Did you cellar. take it seriously? I mean, you were diligent and yeah. head down and all. Yeah, that. so like you didn't want to disappoint her. Right, and um, I really felt like I rose to the occasion, and that was kind of the turning point. When I came back to the States, I was like, all right, I want to be a winemaker someday. So, How long were you there? Six months. Okay. I worked for like four, I think. And, and why do you return? Because you finished the four months, you tooled around yeah, a little. I and couldn't find a Kiwi girl to marry me. Right. So you come back. You go not to Wisconsin, but to back, California? Back to California. All right, so uh, take it from there. So I worked uh, for a temp agency and bopped around doing wine cellar work at various wineries. Uh, that summer, and eventually my resume landed on uh, Adam Lee of Siduri Wines' desk, and he uh, was just looking to build a cellar team. At the time, Siduri was Was tiny. that early Siduri days, or yeah. he had established it? He was on his way up. So they had just, uh, they started in 94, and this was summer of 2000, and they had just kind of started to get a lot more press. You know, Parker broke them, uh, mid-90s. And they were just kind of building on that. So they were like sourcing single vineyard, uh, you know, grapes from Santa Rita, Oregon, San Lucia Islands, Russian River, Sonoma Coast. And so they were just like growing. And so they were really tiny winery. I started working for him three weeks into harvest. He offered me a full-time job because he's like, I don't know how we did this without you. And so. Wow. It was pretty cool. What was the job he offered? Uh, just full time. I was like a temp. Not not a title, but you uh, have a job full time. Maybe maybe cellar master. Okay, or so like that, that where does that go? So I worked for Adam for many years. Uh, kind of worked my way up there. Eventually became his assistant winemaker, and then in parallel to that, he uh, gave me the opportunity to 
make my own wines there. And so I started Zapaltus Wines while working for Siduri. What year? That was 2004. Okay. And so, yeah, I ran Zapaltus Wine at the same time as doing Copan, or sorry, Siduri. How much, how much wine were you making? Zapaltus at its peak was about 3,500 cases, but we started small Ace. with like a, a hundred. <laughs> wow. And then, so I did both those simultaneously for many years, started doing some consulting work, had a bunch of small projects. And then, yeah, the, the Copan opportunity kind of rose to the surface, uh, 16 and... 2016? Yeah, and I officially I mean, came over there. I when you think Copain, you think Wells Guthrie. Right. Right? right. So obviously, at, during 16, Wells comes to you or you come to him? Uh, well, his bosses came to me. Okay. And um, they had uh, joined Jackson family prior that year and... I'd, I'd been through a Siduri acquisition, and uh, I think I, I just, like, really played well with the main office and kind of just helped kind of bring some structure to the place um, just so Wells could just focus on the wine. So I actually came over as a general manager. Um, so we had some overlap. He eventually moved on to uh, new things, and I took over the wine. Was that – was the over, overlap awkward, or were you – was he helping you, or was – it was pretty good, actually. It was no yeah, big I think, deal. Yeah, it was. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I always got along with Wells just fine. So yeah, I was a huge fan of his wines all those years, and I really like when he went for a more restrained style and right your think, sensibilities. And I think a lot of people sort of copied him. Um, and yeah, so for me to kind of take over the helm and uh, kind of carry on that legacy and add my little tweaks and keep the style the same and. You know? So it's only been a little less than four years. Yeah. Right? I have my hands on like three vintages now. So. Okay. Yeah. And because you had an admiration for their type of wines, you just went in and put your touch, whatever you could do to make it better or, you know, carry on the legacy, right? Yeah. Just really stood back and observed the first vintage and um, just kind of like, understand the sensibilities and then you know year number two is like a, a lot of it had to do with just like elevating the farming really spending more time with the vineyard guys and you know we're in a big push to kind of like really take our farming to the next level i'm not saying we're uh going to be fully organic but we're like definitely well, we'll swinging. get into that in a second but I, I wanted to ask you something you basically focus on two grapes i mean you may do more but you are a Pinot and a Chardonnay guy. Absolutely, yeah. Right? When you were at Sidori, you know, big Pinot, I think they did a little show. Why, why did it come to that? I mean, is that, is that something that you pushed in that direction or that's where you wound up? Yeah. You know, I think it just has to do with location. You know, being in Russian River Valley, living in Sebastopol at the time, I, I gradually worked – or naturally ended up working for a burgundy house so to speak right and i fell in love with pinot i'm napa is like almost a foreign you know language to me in a way like i've in made way, cabernet sure. but i mean I just you know you're one guy that could say that with credibility do you ever i asked <laughs> i had nicole marchese from farniente and she makes cab mm -hmm. in shard do you ever itch to make a, a, a wine from another grape. I mean, do you? Have oh a, yeah, I got dreams of doing a little bit, a little bit of everything. Um, what's at the top of the list? Well, I'd love us to take a stab at some sparkling wine. Uh, uh, you know, 
sparkling champagne style Pinot or introduce new grapes? Probably Pinot Noir, Chardonnay, kind of go with the classic style. Um, do you see that becoming a reality in two, three, five, say? Maybe. Are you pushing? Yeah. Uh, I guess the biggest thing I have up my sleeve is I really want to make Cab Franc. I have some experimental lots in the cellar that, you do? that, that don't tell anyone that, but it, they exist. You, you but just, I haven't got the green light to bottle. You just told everyone, but oh, that's man. okay. Right. Nobody listens to my show anyway. <laughs> well, my wife does, and she could keep a secret. Um, I would love to make Cab Franc. You know, we're making that. So that's the answer. I mean, yeah. Uh, sparkling wine and Cab Franc. Yeah. Okay. And, is... and I have a feeling that at some point it'll come to that. Um, is it fair to say that I'm sitting with a guy that likes to make cooler climate wines? Oh, for sure. For sure. So tell my listeners what a cooler climate does for the wines that you make. You know, the difference. So and, it, and it's something that you favor, too. Yeah, for me, uh, why cool climate is important, especially Pinot and Chardonnay, uh, I, it paces out the growing season. Uh, what does that mean? It means you get an elongated hang time, but you don't get elevated sugars. Uh, these cooler sites tend to have uh, the acidity tends to hang around a little bit better. You know, on the coast, the fog is kind of like the retractable dome in a baseball right. stadium. It's like, you know, the you know shuts down photosynthesis earlier in the day. So, slower paced out ripening gives you more complex fruit, which makes more complex wine, in my opinion. Um, you can't really measure. You can measure sugar. You can measure acid, but you can't really measure flavor. You know. And you can't fake flavor. Well, I suppose you could if you use mega purple and stuff like that. But uh, as far as making pure wines, you know, you can't fake flavor. So when you're talking about the, the vineyards and harvesting, because of the cooler climate, and you may have said it, I didn't pick up on it. Are you harvesting earlier, middle, or later than normal? You know, generally on the early plus side, you know, I think... Because you don't want too much sugar or... Exactly. So, okay. I mean, the goal with Copan wines is not to add things or take things away. I don't want to pick something ripe for flavor and then add water back. Like, that's not what we do. We're trying to, like, have as little inputs to the wine as possible. You know, I want Copan wines to be fermented grape juice. Well, so let's talk about only. that. Do you do carbonic maceration? Are you whole cluster, some... You know, wh- how does that work? Uh, yes to all. Uh, we okay. do hope we... we yes we, to all always or depending on the vintage or... So we do whole cluster fermentation a lot on Syrah, a lot on Sonoma Pinot, and very little in Anderson Valley. It just to me, that the, the, the color and the pH shift kind of throws the wine off a little, so... So can you help me with something? We just talked about something that my listeners may not know about which is whole cluster fermentation. Like my friend Al Jr. out there, he doesn't know what that is. Tell people what whole cluster fermentation is. So whole cluster fermentation is, instead of when the grapes are picked, they come in on their stems, they're like a bunch of grapes. Uh, in most cases, it's processed, it's ran through a destemmer, so you're taking the stalks away. Which creates a little opening on the grape, right? Two in a way? Yes. Right. But by leaving it whole cluster... So you're fermenting the grapes with that stem. So it can do a number of things to the wine. Uh, it, can, it can extract a little more like a, uh, silky or tannin. Uh, 
give it a little backbone. Uh, it can really mess with the aromatics. It can make a wine kind of go to more of an exotic level. Um, you have to control that, but you like that it can add aromatics, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's a fun tool to use. Um, you know, we use it where we think it makes sense. Uh, tends to work better in a, a cooler year where you have a longer hang time. In warmer, fast vintages, it, sometimes your stalks are a little green, but, you know, you might adjust the percentage that you would use. Right. Um, but Wait, yeah, we, so when you say adjust the percentage, you'll do less whole cluster? Yes. So like to tame down the green or the vegetal or whatever. Yeah, so in a warm year, I probably would use a lower percentage. So if I was filling a 10-ton tank, I would maybe do 20% stems and the other right. 80% destemmed right. on top of Depending it. Depending on the vintage, you can control and that. Every vintage, every vineyard, every varietals has something to consider. So Copane, they're obviously pulling grapes from the vineyards. The vineyards are leased, contracted, managed, owned. Tell me where the grapes come from. You know, how many different sites, where, and, you know, are any yours now? Or Yeah, so... As it stands right now, by weight or by grape, it's coming across the scale. We're about 80% estate. Most of our grapes are coming from Anderson Valley, Sonoma Coast, and then some of the outlying areas we're working a little bit in Monterey in the Shalone District. Uh, the Brousseau Vineyard, famous vineyard down there. We buy Syrah, Grenache, uh, and Chardonnay from them. Um, so 80% estate. Yeah. Of the 80%, are you making 100% estate wines? Uh, some of our blends would some be considered, are, yeah. yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Talk to me about um, vineyard practices. Sustainability, organics, biodynamics, where are you at with that? How do you feel? So we're kind of in a bit of a, a sea change right now. We're really kind of like want taking steps to elevate our farming. Right now, we... we are you an influencer on that? Is that... Yeah, without a like doubt. Like you're the guy pushing that yes. uh, charge? So as it stands right now, all of our vineyards are, all of our estate properties are eight, are at minimum certified sustainable. Uh, we buy fruit from a lot of organic growers. Um, we have growers that aren't certified, but they've been practicing that. Right. You can but, identify that. Right? Yeah. So what we're doing with Copan is we're just really elevating, you know, you know, Synthetic herbicides are way in the rearview mirror for us, so that's that's out. Uh, what are we doing now in the vineyards? More composting, more trying to create an ecosystem. We're sort of inventing our own recipe for farming. You know, like our spray program moving forward. Um, plan is to be organic on the spray program. So, in your mind, you have a schedule. At yeah. some point, you would like to get somewhere maybe you'll get there on time or whatever but you yeah. want to get there right yeah it's it's you know it's there's financial considerations there's there's other considerations right. if you're deep in the fog it's a little more challenging um a lot more moisture so there's more pressure from molds botrytis well you have you know that moisture the fog i mean you're up against some stuff but our, you know, people are people are doing it and pulling it off. So we're kind of finding our best way. But I mean, in a nutshell, we're trying to do less conventional things and do more positive things. You know, trying to think of the vineyards as an ecosystem, not a, a farm of grapes. Um, so you know, cover crop, like you know, 
mowing versus spraying, like right. like all these things, just less dependence on like conventional practices and more of thinking of it. Walk me into the cellar now. So now we're in the cellar. You could do a great job outside and you could certainly screw it up in the cellar. Talk to me about cellar practices in that same vein. Okay, so I think I mentioned it earlier, um, but I may have mentioned it in the thing I was just in before this, but our goal is to not add things or take things away. So I want right. That's I want low intervention. Yeah. So I want to pick my grapes when they're perfectly ripe, so minimize any adjustments in the winery. So uh, they're just fermented grape juice at the end of the day. I mean, obviously... As a winemaker, you might have to adjust some acidity here and there. Uh, our goal is to not ever have to add water. Um, and then in the cellar... Kind of nail it without any addition, right? Right. I mean, that's yeah. the ultimate goal. Right. And um, we don't use commercial yeasts, so that we have a really good house yeast and a good malolactic bacteria in house, so fermentations go on their own. So for me, and it'll help my listeners... Is a house yeast an indigenous yeast, or it's a yeast that you have chosen and control? Indigenous. It is indigenous. Yep. Okay. And. So that's that's naturally occurring yeast. Yeah. Yep. Either on the skin, something's something's in control of the cellar. Whether it's something that comes in on the skins, what something that's living in our winery, whatever whatever that ghost is, does a nice job. Right. I'm not against co- commercial cultured yeast. Right. But some of the powerful ones can alter mouthfeel, alter aromatics, and we don't want to do that. You know, we want to express the place the grapes are grown. And also in the cellar, we're not we're not using a lot of new wood to obscure things. So our Chardonnays are very, very low percentage of new wood. Pinots might get a little bit more new wood, but... But just, they're wood. I mean, you're not doing any stainless steel. You know, our rosés will be aged and fermented and stainless, but everything... That makes sense for rosé. Yeah. Shards are all barrel fermented. Uh, all the reds are barrel aged, tank fermented. Do you have to deal with any sort of climate change? I mean, are you in the years that you've been... You know, in the wine business in Sonoma, I mean, are are think are you harvesting later, earlier? Are you making adjustments, or you're not there yet? Um, it's definitely been a slow creep, but I, it definitely the vibes feel totally different than when I first got into it. Because of that? Yeah, I think because so. Because of just naturally changing things. Yeah, I mean, the big thing in the drought years, you know, 12, 2012 through fifteen. Um, the, um, the bud breaks were happening earlier in the vineyard, so the end of the growing season was coming in mid-late August. You know, when I first got in the business, we didn't do anything till after Labor Day. Um, last year was a little bit different, but what we do in the vineyards, we just try to strategize um, how we do our canopy management. Do we expose the fruit to sun? Do we have speckled sunlight? Do we pull lots of leaves? Do we pull just a little bit of leaves? All these things based on how the growing season's going. It's not the same every year, and it's not the same as five years yeah, ago. Sometimes right? you gamble and you win, and sometimes you lose. Sometimes you overexpose the fruit to the sun or don't give give it enough. Or So Napa and Sonoma were pretty well known for some full-throttle wines, you know, through the years, the Parker years and all that stuff. You guys never made wines that way, right? Uh, no. Kind of always made the wines you wanted to make, you know, Wells and you and all of that. Um, do you think there's a movement 
away from that? You know, that restraint is, are you seeing more of that or you don't give a crap or? Um, no, I, I, I see it. And I, I think, I think most winemakers would admit that they've kind of dialed back a little bit. Even people that were. Why? Because that's what the consumer wants or. I think. Probably because they want they want to they want to want to drink their own wines more so than the consumer. I think so. When it comes down to what I like and what's good, this is how it should be done. Yeah, and fair I, enough. I just think you know, as we mature, we like find moderation in most cases. Hopefully, we do. Um, and I think yeah, just we realize like we don't need to pick at monster bricks. Right. Like, even a I don't know. I even feel like Costa Brown wines are more restrained than they were maybe when they, they were pretty big. Um, for but, example, but things have changed over there too. So. Right, but the winemaking teams have always been solid, and um, so for example, I just think we've all kind of like backed off a little bit. Is that the customer demand? Well, I don't know. I kind of feel that way. I feel like our customer appreciates like our Chardonnays aren't. Well, they always did. That's why they came yeah. to you. I'm talking about everybody around you, and I think you're yeah. right. I mean, you I described mean, it correctly. I mean, cab is still king. Do you ever want to make Jewish. a cab? Uh, when I asked you, sparkling wine and, you know, maybe something else. Yeah, I would love to make, a, like, a, a, a cool climate cabernet. I think it was fun. We, I had some a 2010 from Cool Vintage uh, yesterday in Napa, uh, from Napa, and it was incredible. It was just cooler vintage cabs, like, a little more minty, a little more eucalyptus. I don't know, kind of like Sounds those, like heights. Like Stony Hill. Heights, yeah, yeah. Heights. Um, and sometimes I get kind of intrigued, but All I got right. enough hobbies. Yeah, Trousseau, you'll get I there. I got pick pool. I Sell the skateboard. Um, last thing, and then we got to wrap up. Is it fair to say that the Sonoma Coast is sort of having a moment? That's not going to go away because I think the wines and the people have a very strong conviction. But, I mean, there's some incredible people making wine out there. Oh. I, do you see that more now than ever? I think so. You know, like, like 10 years ago, if you had a bottle of Sonoma and a Russian River side by side, most people would recognize Russian River and then Sonoma Coast would be maybe like, I don't understand it. But now I feel like they've almost evened right. out. I that was kind of my point. You know, Russian River is probably still more popular and recognizable, but I think, I think, that's, gonna, I think that's gonna equal out a little, yeah. you know? All right, so if people want more information on Copain Wines, what's the best place to go to the website? Uh, yeah, uh, hit up the copainwines.com website. What Follow us on Instagram. <laughs> Tell me about social media handles. Uh, I, our Instagram handle is just Copain Wines. And do you have a Instagram? Like oh, if yeah. people want to see you skateboarding yeah, I need more naked, followers. can they? Uh... Well, we won't have that, but okay. maybe some other embarrassing things. <laughs> okay. Uh, but yeah, just Where my name, Ryan Zapaltas, at Z-E-P-A-L-T-A-S, Ryan Zapaltas. Z-E-P-A-L-T-A-S, right? Yeah, I, I got to get Ryan my, uh, my uh, followers up to so I can be an influencer. So tell me quickly, what are you doing at the festival? You doing some tastings or? All sorts of stuff. I just did an Anderson Valley seminar. I hosted for about 40 people. Very like, we walked through from Boonville to Navarro throughout the valley, tasted wines through all parts. Are you done with events or you have? Uh, one more I have a, uh, yeah, I'm done with events. Okay. I when are you leaving town? Tonight, but, uh, 5 a.m. tomorrow morning. Okay, good for you. All right, Ryan, we got to wrap up. I want to thank you for taking some time talking about uh, Copenhagen. Thank you for having me. Let us, uh, letting us know a little more about you. Thanks to, 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network on tour. I'm Sam Ben Ruby from The Grape Nation. We want to thank the Julia Child Foundation for making our coverage possible. Stay tuned for more Charleston wine and food. Again, thank you, Ryan Zapaltis from Copane Wines. Good luck and thank you for sitting with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate Thanks. it. This program is powered by Simplecast. 